0: Turn to Genesis chapter four. Genesis chapter four this morning. (coughs) Excuse me. Let's read from verse sixteen as we begin this morning. It says and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he built a city, and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly <coughs> so Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather. Uh, even in this format, and uh, spend some time around your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just enable me now through the the power of the Spirit, give me wisdom and guidance as I speak, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts this morning, that you would teach us, you would instruct us through your word, uh, refresh us, Lord, this morning, and may we, uh, Lord, give all praise and glory unto your name. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, last uh, Sunday we saw Cain commit the very first uh, murder. We saw how God had warned Cain, you know, told him to deal with his bitterness, his anger, uh, and warned him that if he didn't, sin was lying at the door. And Cain ignored God and he he went out and he killed his own brother. As a result of this, God had pronounced uh, the curse upon Cain, had pronounced judgment upon Cain. We read that there in verse Uh, 12, It's verse 11, it says, And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And so God has pronounced this judgment, this curse upon Cain. You know, of course, he was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. This was his... His livelihood, this is what he did, and yet God now says that the ground will no longer yield its fruit under him. And so he's forced to to leave and to wander around to be a fugitive, a vagabond in the earth. And the rest of chapter 4 now focuses on Cain after he leaves uh, where his parents are. He leaves the, the area around the Garden of Eden. It focuses on Cain and his descendants And then we're given a brief contrast, if you like, with Seth and his descendants. And this section of the chapter is a most intriguing passage because it gives us an insight into what life was like before the flood here on earth. Now we're given a glimpse, if you like, of the very first human civilization, which of course has been completely wiped out, destroyed, and there's not much remnant of it by the flood. And the flood with all that upheaval and all the sediment and everything is buried and uh, hidden this first civilization, if you like, from memory. Uh, I was reading this week that very few uh, physical clues are left uh, to the nature of the life before the flood, save for a few artifacts that they have found, and they have found some artifacts. But they're found deep in the earth's uh, rock strata. And they're deep down in the, in, the, the, in the crust where they find these few artifacts from this time when Cain and his descendants and Abel, of course, and Adam were all alive and on the earth. And so really the, the biblical record that we have, this brief biblical record, is all we have to tell us about life before the flood. And what the biblical record reveals to us is that early men were far from being primitive brutes, which of course is what you know, evolutionists have imagined men to be. Okay, early man was not primitive. Genesis chapter 4 makes it clear that man's technological and cultural level advanced rapidly. Men built cities. They developed tools. They had industry. They even had musical instruments. Society was developing rapidly after creation here. And indeed at the same time, the size of the population is increasing rapidly you know adam and eve have been told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and indeed their descendants were filling the earth in genesis chapter 5 in particular it's it's clear that men lived much longer lives uh, than they did before than they did after the flood okay than we do now men before the flood lived extremely long lives and of course we've said before this is most likely due to the the firmament the the water canopy that god put around the earth back in chapter 1 with, the, with creation. And this water canopy protected man from the harmful rays from space, harmful radiation from the sun, meaning that men live these longer lives, which in turn means that population grows faster and population is sustained as well. And the commentator Morris writes this, he says, by the time of the deluge or the flood, Even using conservative assumptions, the world population would have been at least 7 billion people. And that's using conservative assumptions that, you know, Adam and Eve only had a few children, yet Adam was alive for almost 900 years, and so he probably had a lot of children. And so the point is, even using conservative assumptions, the world population would have exploded. And so I think at times we we restricted this just this tiny little time, this tiny little period and there's not much happening. No, there's a a great deal that happens before the flood. The population explodes, the industry, um, technology is rapidly expanding. And we're introduced to this rapid growth with Cain and his descendants being introduced to us here at the end of chapter 4. And then as I said, there's a contrast with Seth and his line. So first of all, this morning, we see Cain now cast out. We see Cain cast out. Look in verse 16 with me. This is, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. In verse 16, immediately after he receives the judgment, the curse from God, we see Cain now go out from the presence of the Lord. You know, he'd been... Cursed to be a fugitive, to be a vagabond in the earth, and now that new life begins. It's a total change of life for him, isn't it? Okay, there's a new life that now begins under the curse. We're told that he heads east away from the Garden of Eden. And indeed, he also is heading away from the meeting place with God, isn't he? We talked about how they probably came to um, where the, the, the angels were there guarding the way to the tree of life. That's probably where they met with the Lord to offer sacrifice. And so Cain now is heading away from the Garden of Eden, he's heading away from the the meeting place with God, and he's heading out to begin this new life. And it says that he dwells in the land of Nod. Now the word Nod actually means wandering. And it's a reference to the new life which Cain is now forced to live. Uh, This cursed life, a life of wandering, a life of being a fugitive, a vagabond. Now some have suggested that the the land of Nod was not an actual geographical location or region, but merely it's a figure of speech uh, for Cain's perpetual manner of life. Now that's a possibility. But since the very next verse, verse 17, talks about how Cain built a city there, it does seem more likely that this is an actual region uh, or uh, place called Nod. Okay, and, of course, it's named that because this is where Cain goes to dwell. Okay, it's a reference to Cain and his new life. In verse 17, as I said, we're, we're told about Cain building the city, but we're also told about his first son. Verse 17 says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he built a the city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. It says, And Cain knew his wife. She conceived, and they had their first son and called him Enoch. Now the the answer to the silly question that always gets asked here, where did Cain get his wife from? Okay, the answer to that question is very simple. Cain obviously married one of his sisters. Okay, it's very simple. Genesis chapter 5 verse 4 makes it clear that Adam had several sons and daughters. Go to Genesis 5 with me, verse 4. It says, in the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. Okay, so it's very clear Adam had more than just Cain, Abel and Seth. He had sons and daughters. Cain has married one of his sisters. Okay, and you know there's no problem with this right back here at the beginning. There's no problem with a brother and sister getting married because there is purity to the human gene pool, isn't there? Okay, there's purity to the human gene pool so there's no genetic harm that can result From these close marriages. You know, even in the time of Abraham, this was still taking place. Abraham married his half sister, Sarah. Go over to Genesis chapter 20 with me. Genesis 20 and verse 12. Well, we'll start in verse 11. It says, And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. And so it was even occurring in Abraham's time. These marriages were allowed to continue even after the flood. And it's not until the time of Moses, when God's giving Moses the law, that the gene pool has become so corrupted and so polluted that God now forbids. Marriages between close relatives. And we see that in Leviticus 18. Let's just turn there quickly. Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 and verse 9. It says, The nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father or daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness thou shalt not Uncover. And so God makes it clear that it's forbidden, Leviticus 18. It's no longer acceptable, it's part of the law. And so, you know, it was acceptable at the beginning because, as we said, there's a small gene pool, there's no reason for problems with genetics, problems or anything like that. It's not until Moses that it's outlawed, okay? I say all that because it answers that very simple, very silly question that gets asked, where did Cain get his uh, wife from? Well, he married one of his sisters. It's, it's a very simple, logical answer, isn't it? Okay. And the firstborn son here, we're told, they call Enoch. Let's just go back to chapter 4, verse 17. It says, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And the name, name Enoch means dedication or commencement. And it's a name that probably you know, signified to Cain that he was starting a completely new life. He probably names his son Enoch commencement because he's commencing a new life. He's beginning something completely new. He's gone out from everything that he had known, living with his parents, living with his brother and his siblings. He's gone out from that and he's starting a new life as a fugitive, as a vagabond in the earth. And so he names his son Commencements. We're also told in verse 17 that Cain builds a city and he names it after his son. At the end of verse 17 it says, And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So he builds this city, and he names it after his son. Now, the fact that Cain builds a city here suggests to us that Cain is trying to defy God's curse. Suggests to us that he's trying to circumnavigate, he's trying to nullify the curse that God had placed in him. He's trying to settle down, he's trying to live in one place. Now, Nullify that curse, that he would be a vagabond in the earth. Now, whatever his intent was... He begins building this city, establishing this city. Now, at first, it was probably just a, a fortified dwelling place okay, for him and his family. And then as his descendants grow, they add to it and it becomes a larger city. Okay, But it's talking about a fortified dwelling place. And he starts building this place and calls it Enoch. Now, the Hebrew word for building here, okay, it says there in verse 17, and he builded. That Hebrew word there is indefinite. And what it means is that he was building. It's indefinite. It doesn't suggest that he concluded it. It actually suggests to us that he started building this city, this dwelling place, but he didn't finish it. So perhaps the Lord did move him on. Okay? The Lord did force Cain to keep wandering. Okay? Moved him on, leaving his son to finish the city at a later date. And on this event, Gusick, he remarks this. He says, here we see the beginning of industry and urbanization, and that it is strongly man-centered. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son. It's man-centered, not God-centered. The fall of the human race continues to pick up speed. And so that's what we see here. As Cain builds this city, his focus is not on God. His focus is completely man-centered. He names the city after his own son. He's concerned with himself, his own life, his descendants, leaving a name for himself in the earth. And so Cain builds this city, this new life, far from the presence of God, a life that, as I said, is man-centered, and this is how his descendants continue. They follow on from this point. And so we see secondly this morning, Cain's descendants. Cain's descendants. Look in verse 18 with me. It says, And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Irab begat Mehu-jil, and Mehu-jil begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Adar, the name of the other, Zilhar. And Adar bare Jabal, Jabal. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-cain, an instructor of every artificer, in brass and iron. And the name of Tubal-cain, sorry, and the sister of Tubal-cain was Neymar. And so here we have uh, the, Cain's descendants. Okay? in these verses here, we're given um, six generations of Cain's descendants. And the descendants' named for us in verse 18. I'm not going to read it again. Okay, I've already read those names once. The descendants named for us in verse 18, they're briefly mentioned really just to get us to Lamech. Okay? That's really why they're there, just to show us who uh, is in this line leading towards the prominent figure, Lamech, and then his three sons. Okay, That's really where the focus of the passage is upon. So let's look first of all here at Lamech. Okay? Uh, Lamech, this descendant of Cain. In verse 19 it says, And Lamech took... Under him two wives. The name of the one was Adar, and the name of the other, Zillah. And then if you drop down to verse 23, it says, And Lamech said unto his wives, Adar and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. So we have this man, Lamech, a prominent figure in the descendants of Cain. And he is the seventh from Adam on Cain's side. Okay, He's the seventh from Adam on Cain's side. And his arrogance and his wickedness is set in contrast to the seventh from Adam on Seth's side, who is none other than Enoch. Now, of course, it's not Cain's son Enoch. This is the other Enoch. Chapter 5, verse 24. We know Enoch well. Okay, it says in verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in the New Testament, it says he's the seventh from Adam. And if you check the genealogy, he's the seventh. And so you've got these two men. One on Cain's side, Lamech, the seventh from Adam. And you've got Enoch on the other side. Enoch, of course, is a man of faith. A man who walks in a sweet relationship with the Lord. So much so that God takes him home to be with him. By contrast, this man, Lamech, is a sinful, wicked man, arrogant man and his life clearly demonstrates this attitude the sin in his heart there's a complete contrast here between the two men you Now, one commentator wrote he said the powerful development of the worldly mind and of ungodliness among the Canaanites was openly displayed in lamech if you like he's like he epitomizes the attitude of all of them he epitomizes them all and there's two ways that we see this displayed in Lamech. In verse 19, we see Lamech's open rebellion against the Lord as he takes two wives. Okay, Verse 19, we read it before, it says, And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Adan, the name of the other, Zillah. He takes two wives. Now, God had ordained the principle of marriage, hasn't, hadn't he? In chapter 2, God had said that it was a marriage between one man, one woman, and for life, they were, uni- they were one flesh, unified together. This was the relationship that God had ordained, God had established to be the foundation of the home. And you know, Lamech, he would have known this. He would have understood this. Remember, it's not many generations after Adam. He would have known Adam. Okay, He, he would have known what God had said, but he disregards God's principle. He disregards God's uh, ordained system of marriage And instead, he marries two women, Adar and Zillah. And so he becomes the very first polygamist. It didn't take them very long, did it? In the generation of man, before you have a man who takes more than one wife and becomes a polygamist. One commentator wrote this. He said, Lamech took two wives and thus was first to prepare the way for polygamy, by which the ethical aspect of marriage, as ordained by God, was turned into the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. And that's really what he's done. He's now living a relationship where lust is his focus, is his desire. And indeed, the names of his wives suggest this to us, suggest that lust and pleasure were his chief concerns in life. The name Adar means pleasure, ornament, beauty. You know, that speaks about her beauty. Her, that, that's what he was looking for. And then the name Zillah, Zillah means shade. And it's probably a reference to her long, beautiful hair. And the point is that both of these, these names indicate that these are attractive women and show to us that physical lust and pleasure is the prime factor in Lamach's actions here. That's what he's driven by. That's what he's living for. Actions that were clearly contrary to God's revealed will for men. God had said marriage is between one man and one woman. But he disregards God and makes pleasure. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh. The prime uh, motivation for his actions here. We see secondly, Lamach's rebellion displayed in his proud boasting of killing another man. Look in verse 23. This is, And Lamach said unto his wives Adar and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamach; Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. Now here we see his character revealed. Now Lamech boasts to his wives about the fact that he has killed another man, about the fact he's murdered someone. Now we're not told anything about the, the man that he's killed here that Lamech mentions. We're simply told that this young man had somehow wounded him And so Lamech had taken retribution by killing him. That's basically what it's saying there. This young man had wounded Lamech, and so Lamech had taken vengeance. And he'd gone out and murdered this man. And he's proud of this. He's boastful of this fact. He's boastful of the fact that he's taken another man's life. He's boastful about his vengeance. You know, perhaps worse than this is then the blasphemous outburst against God in verse 24. He says, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. You know, Cain, of course, had been protected by God. God had said that he would take vengeance sevenfold against anyone who killed Cain. God would deal with them. And here, what we see is Lamech makes a blasphemous declaration. Okay, and basically, in effect, what he says is this He says, Well, if God promises a sevenfold vengeance on anyone killing Cain, I myself guarantee a 77fold retribution on anyone who even hurts me. That's basically what he's saying. Here. He's saying God promised to, to deal with anyone who hurt Cain. Well, I promise I'll go further than that. I promise that I will deal with it even more if anyone even harms me. You see, Lamech here is full of pride, isn't he? Pride in himself. And his ability to take care of himself. He thinks he doesn't need God. You know, Cain needed God to protect him. I don't need God. I'll protect myself. There's pride here. There's boastfulness here. There's blasphemy against God here. You know, the way that Lamech boasted about his murder, and the way he believes he can promise greater retribution than God himself, shows a progressive degeneration amongst humanity. You know, things are going downhill fast. Now, one commentator said of this, he said, This is all a picture of humanism. The city is Cain's city. The focus of Lamech is his beautiful wives and his own perceived strength. But for all of Lamech's boasting, neither he nor his descendants are ever heard of again in the Bible. He came to nothing. But that's the point here. Lamech here is full of boastfulness. And, it, and it's a humanistic approach to life. Cain, you know, he, he names the city after his son. It's all about man-centered. Lamech here, he's all concerned with beauty and, and concerned with pleasure and he's concerned with his own strength. He's full of pride. It's a humanistic life. And his descendants were no better. And that's where we come now to Lamech's sons. The second point there. Subpoint, if you like this morning, Lamech's sons, verse 20. It says, And Adar bare Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all such as handle a harp and organ. And Zillah, <coughs> she also bare Chubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Chubalcane was Naamah. Now, contrary to what modern evolutionary theory would have us believe, mankind advances rapidly, advances very quickly. And this is seen here in Lamech's three sons, each of them contributing to the advancement of society. The first of these sons, uh, Jabel, in verse 20, it says, And Adabe Jabal, he was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And so Jabel is said to be the father of those that dwell in tents. And because he's said to be the father of, it suggests that he is the one that um, first invented the tent. Okay? He led people in dwelling in these places, but he invented it. He invented the tent, um, this portable dwelling place. And Barnes notes on this, he says, The making of tents implies some skill in carpentry. And also in spinning and weaving. The point is there's a lot involved in the making of a tent. It's not just oh, go and get a, a blanket and throw it over Someone had to make the blanket first. Okay? There's, there's a lot involved. And so there's, there's ingenuity here. There's this uh, inventiveness here. As he invents the tent and, and perhaps he invented it out of necessity. As it seems that he was a nomad. He carried his home with him and he moved around from one place to another. He wandered around. His name actually means wanderer. And so it seems that that's what he was. He wandered around. And the reason for this nomadic lifestyle is because he's also the father of those who have cattle. Okay, It says there at the end of the verse, and of such as have cattle. What this means is that he also developed formal systems for domesticating and commercially producing cattle, animals. And this is besides sheep, okay, remember Abel was a keeper of sheep, so that's already taken place. This is referring to other kinds of livestock. The term cattle includes cows, camels, goats, um, donkeys, the list goes on. Okay, it's talking about the raising of livestock in general. And there's also a suggestion here that Jabal and his contemporaries are now also eating meat. Okay, why else would he be keeping all these animals? Why would he be raising them commercially? Why is he doing this? Well, could be for skins, but there's also a suggestion that it's for meat as well. And so by doing so, they're d- disobeying another of God's commands. Back in Genesis chapter 2, God had said that they would eat of the fruit of the ground. That's what he created them to do. And we've seen it before. It's not until Noel comes off the ark that God gives him the mandate that he can now eat meat. And so this is a suggestion that Cain's descendants are now eating meat as well. The second son is Jubal, verse 21. It says, And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle uh, the harp and organ. Now his name means sound. And he's a completely different man from his brother. You put him against his brother and they're totally different, aren't they? Now Jabel he lived in a tent. He travelled around with his livestock from one place to another making sure they've got enough food and everything like that. And then you have his brother, Jubal. His name means sound, and Jubal has an ear for music. You know, if you like, he likes the arts. He's a totally different brother, isn't he? He's obviously an inventive genius, just like his brother. As it's said to, that from him comes both stringed and wind instruments. Okay? It says that he was the father of all such as handle, harp, and organ. Okay? Wind and stringed or uh, instruments, And so music, musical instruments are now a big part of the culture. They're in the, the Canite culture, they're in the city. There's now music, it's a big part of it. Now remember again, we're only eight generations from Adam, aren't we? Eight generations and we've already got music being played, we've got musical instruments being invented. And you know what that also implies is there's also now writing taking place. Writing down of, the, of, of musical uh, notes and all that kind of stuff, and it also references books, uh, things like that being written at this point in time. And then the last son mentioned is Tubal-Cain uh, in verse 22. It says, And Zillah, she also bare Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Anamar. Okay, Tubal-Cain, like his half-brothers, is again an obviously wise man, Inventive genius, he is said to be the instructor of every artificer of brass and iron. He's the first blacksmith recorded in the Word of God. And he taught others how to melt down iron, and brass. He taught them how to melt and to use these, these metals to fabricate farming implements, tools, weapons, armor, etc. Again, they're not primitive, are they? Okay? Mankind has advanced very quickly. Now Dielich notes this, he says, Lamech's three sons are the authors of inventions which show how the mind and efforts of the Cainites were directed towards the beautifying and perfecting of the earthly life. That was really their focus. It's the beautifying and the perfecting of the earthly life. Cain's descendants, you know, they lived in a society that's rich in culture. You read this, description, you know, I've done it before, you read it and you wonder why is it in the word of God? You know, this is Cain's descendants, they're not godly men, and yet it's almost like they're praised for the things that they do. You know, Cain's descendants, they live in this this culture that's rich in industry, food production, musical ability, all these things are taking place, this city must have been a wonder, a place to live. But you know, they had everything in a earthly sense, in a man-centered world, they had Everything. But they didn't have the most important thing of all. And that was a relationship with God. You notice that? That's the thing that's missing. They've got all these earthly things. All these wonderful things are taking place. Uh, Everything's progressing quickly. But there's no mention of God. They're not serving God. There's no relationship with the Lord. And that's where Seth now comes in. And Seth is introduced to us here at the end of uh, chapter 4. And that's our final point this morning. Seth introduced. Look in verse 25. It says, Adam knew his wife, Again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son. And he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. You know, having told us about Cain and his descendants, demonstrating how life for them was completely man Centered. The author now turns his attention to Seth and shows us the complete opposite is true. Morris writes this, he says, There is a marked change of emphasis in the record of the descendants of Adam through Seth. No more do we read of human accomplishments and boasting, but rather of men calling upon the name of the Lord. There is a complete change here. We don't read about these wonderful human accomplishments. We don't read about boasting anymore with Seth's descendants. Instead, the focus is on the Lord. There's a change. Man-centered. God-centered. In verse 25, we're told that Eve conceives and calls her son's name Seth. Okay, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, Whom Cain slew. You know, Seth's name means appointed or substituted. Substitute. Adam and Eve, you know they had many other children. We've already seen that. Genesis chapter 5 verse 4. They had other children who are not mentioned by name. But Seth is worthy of mention because he replaced or was a substitute for Abel. The one who'd been slain by Cain. You know, once again here we see the faith of Eve, don't we? As, as her son is born, she names her son in faith. She calls him Seth, substitute, And she does this because she believed that it would be through him that the promise would now be fulfilled, that through Seth the promised seed would come. She names him in faith. And indeed it is through Seth that the godly lion comes. In verse 26, we're told that Seth has a son of his own named Enos. It says, and, and to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. It says he has his own son named Enos, and in that time, during this time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean when it says that men began to call Upon the name of the Lord. Didn't they do that before, that, before now? Didn't you know, Abel go and call upon the Lord? Didn't Adam? So what does it mean? Well, the commentator Morris, he says this. This phrase almost certainly signifies the beginning of regular worship of the Lord, probably replacing the previous practice of individually meeting with him, as Cain and Abel did. Perhaps it also refers to the beginning of the practice of prayer implying that God's immediate presence was no longer accessible. And so it's the idea that now regular worship services are happening. They're gathering together now. Not worshiping individually, they're worshiping, worshiping together. They're meeting together to worship the Lord, to call upon the name of their God, our God. You know, Some have referred to this verse as the very first revival. The very first revival. There was a, a downward generation, taking place amongst Cain's descendants. They're going backwards, aren't they? They're going into humanism. They're forgetting the Lord. There's a humanistic approach to life. But then amongst Seth and his descendants, there's a realization of the need to come and regularly worship the Lord. There's a realization of the need to come and call upon his name. You know, throughout the Old Testament, when we see people coming to call upon the name of the Lord, it always involves sacrifice sacrifices they call upon him, and so we can assume that's what they're doing. They're gathering together to worship the Lord by offering sacrifices and praising his name and and calling upon his name in prayer. See, the point is that there is a spiritual resurgence amongst Seth's descendants. A spiritual resurgence. In conclusion this morning, Wearsby, he notes this. He says, Cain's family tree ends with the family of Lamech, an arrogant murderer, whose three sons manufactured things for this world. Seth's line ends with Noah, whose three sons gave the world a new beginning after the flood. The world of that day probably admired Cain's achievements, but God wiped them off the face of the earth. And this is a stark reminder, isn't it? You know, Cain and his descendants, they seemed to have everything going for them. It was a man-centered world. Their priority was wrong. They were humanistic. Their priorities were wrong. God dealt with them. They're forgotten. They're gone. Everything they developed, everything they did, he's gone. Wiped off the face of the earth. They forgot God. Their priorities were wrong. Seth and his descendants called upon the Lord. doesn't mean all of Seth's descendants were righteous. It just means that Seth's line called upon God. They... Had a God-centered world, a God-centered life. You know, and it reminds us that our priorities must be right. It reminds us that our priorities as believers must be that God has first place in our life. We need to make sure that we're not consumed by living for self, that we're not consumed by living for human achievements. But rather we're living a life that honors Him worshipping His holy name. I think First John chapter 2 sums it up well. Let's just go there as we close this morning. First John 2. First <clears throat> John chapter 2 and verse 15. First John 2 verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, He's not of the Father, but he's of the world. Verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I think it sums it up perfectly. You know, The, the lust of this world pass away. The things of this world, they pass away. They don't last. Only what's done for God abides forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, and Father. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you record for us uh, Lord, Cain and his descendants, Lord, we can see how they, how they developed, and it's amazing to see the development taking place. But Lord, it was a man-centered world, it was a humanistic world. And Lord, uh, it's in contrast to Seth and his descendants calling upon you. Lord, may we uh, indeed remember our own lives to put you first, to make our lives God-centered, Lord. And Lord, may you help us in, in this very humanistic world to stand out for you, we pray. Uh, Bless as we close now in Jesus' name. Amen.